Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. On October 28, 2015, I had a chance to interview Judd Winnick in the studios of KPFA on the publication of his graphic novel, Hilo, The Boy Who Crashed to Earth, a second book in the series, Hilo, Saving the Whole Wide World, was published in May 2016, and a third book, Hilo, The Great Big Boom, will be published in February 2017. Both Hilo books have spent time and continue to spend time on the New York Times hardcover top 10 graphic novels bestseller list. Judd Winnick got his start actually as a uh, newspaper cartoonist, wound up on the MTV Real World reality show where he achieved some kind of fame and afterward wrote a graphic novel, autobiographical graphic novel called Pedro and Me about his friendship with Pedro Zamora who uh, died of AIDS. He's created an animated TV series, The Life and Times of Juniper Lee, designs illustrations for The Complete Idiot's Guide, has written books like The Adventures of Barry Ween, Boy Genius. Yeah, that's named after my best friend. Oddly enough, he had me redo the spelling of his last name. It's actually, here it's W-E-E-N. He said his spelling is W-E-I-N. He said, I'm going to do you a favor that no one ever did me. So it's not Barry Wine, Wayne. It's like <laughs> Barry Ween, named after my best buddy. And writes for DC Comics. You're still writing for DC? No, I had to. I actually, uh, I, I stopped while doing this. I had actually to stop doing a number of things while while doing Hilo. Are you planning to go back to it? Not in the near future. It was. It wasn't like we broke bad or anything. It was simply that I wanted to be a full time cartoonist again. When I work for DC, I write. I write the superhero comics. I can't draw like that. The uh, head writer for the Awesomes is that still happening? I had to leave that too in the third season to work on Hilo. Amicable across the board, though. So everyone was really good about it. Like, yeah, I want to go off and, like, crawl down in my basement and draw this book if that's okay. Everyone's like, go, Godspeed, enjoy. Well, let's start by talking a little bit about High Low, The Boy Who Crashed to Earth. It's, I guess, a graphic novel. Yeah. It's hard to they, say exactly. They call it a middle grade book, which means 8 to 12 is a sweet spot. I kind of call it all ages in okay. a way of trying to give moms and dads a, a wink and a nod that, you won't go crazy when you read this. It's not annoying. Uh, most of the time in looking at your resume, while you have done some work for young people in yeah. terms of the, the writing for television for the Cartoon Network, have you done anything even remotely like a middle school book before? No. No. I mean, I think you'd have to go back to when I did comic strips. I did a comic strip, oh gosh, it was uh, probably over a decade ago at this point. Comic strips are pretty much all ages, and that's how you sort of look at it. They're in, they <laughs> were in, well, we still have these things called newspapers, which for the kids at home, if you're listening, those are iPads made of paper. Newspaper comic strips were always sort of all ages. So I'd say that would be as close as I got. But this happened because my seven-year-old 
who's now 10, three years ago asked if he could read some of the Batman comics I wrote. And I had to tell him, no, you may not. <laughs> Those are for older kids and grown-ups. And that was kind of putting the, the bug in my ear to maybe, well, do comics for kids. Because when I was a kid, you know, we're talking about way back in the 1970s, you could read mainstream superhero comics. And now, and I was part of the problem. We made them all gritty and edgy and dark. And now a little guy of seven or eight really can't read mainstream superhero comics. So I wanted to do something that was kind of in between, that sort of looked and felt like a comic strip and had lots of humor, but was still sort of an action adventure. Had you thought about creating an online comic strip like the new Bloom County, which is only on uh, Facebook? Yeah, no. To be honest, I go way back to my dream as a kid, like eight or nine years old, I wanted to do a daily syndicated comic strip. That's all I ever wanted to do and shunned trying to find any other usable skills along the way. That's all I wanted to do. And in college, I did a daily strip for the Michigan Daily at University of Michigan. I did it five days a week, and it was great. Uh, great fun rather than not necessarily a great strip. But when I finally got syndicated, it was after the real world, and it was after knowing Pedro Zamora, and it was after my wife Pam and I had taken over a lecture tour for him. We spent a year and change basically touring the country telling people what it was like to know and lose Pedro and about HIV. And somewhere in there, for lack of any other word, doing a comic strip just kind of felt sort of small. It felt like I needed to tell a larger story. And that's why, that's why I started doing my first graphic novel, Pedro and Me. When that came out, were there other graphic novels? That was pre-Watchmen or? No, it was sometime after that. Well, it was in 2001. And to give you some context, they put a photograph of Pedro on the cover, kind of worrying that people might be turned off if they knew it was a graphic novel. So there were not many. It, was, it had just sort of started. Mouse had already been out. Sandman, Neil Gaiman's Sandman had already been starting to be collected. Uh, Watchmen, which was one of the first graphic novels to actually be collected as a book. And it was a few years after they started really using the expression graphic novel to get into, you know, into mainstream bookstores. I want to talk a little bit more about your other career, but let's focus for a second on high-low. Sure, sure. Uh, what makes it middle school, how do you determine what is appropriate and what isn't? And also, this got to be some kind of very gray area mm. as well. I think the better books occupy that really good gray area. And the better stories occupy that gray area. I was sort of shooting for a Pixar movie in the sense of that's the kind of storytelling I wanted to do. I didn't want it to be overly silly. I didn't want it to be overly simple. Um, I wanted to keep the, we'll call it the level of potty humor, not literally about, you know, bathroom humor, but, you know, I've got a lot of cheap jokes in there. But as a grown-up, I like a good cheap joke, too. I think all I was concentrating on as far as, like, making it for kids is um, I made sure the vocabulary kind of kept it low as far as the SAT value. No swear words. And other than that, it was pretty much a story that I, was, I thought that a 40-year-old could enjoy as much as a 9-year-old. And I think kids sort of sense that. You know, they, they like a good silly romp. This is a book that's loaded with jokes. It's, it's, it is, it's an action adventure, but it's, it's also a comedy. At one point, you described it as part E.T., part Doctor Who. Mm -hmm. I get that. Part Peanuts, which I get as well. Right. And also part Calvin and Hobbes. And I think we all miss Calvin and Hobbes. There was something about that strip, nothing else. Yeah. No, it was, it was uh, I would say, a bright, shining moment, but it was 10 years. He did Calvin Hobbes for about 10 years and knew at the end, like, nope, that's it. I'm out. 
you're hard pressed to figure out, you know, find things that kind of went out on top, like the Mary Tyler Moore show. Right. You know, Calvin Hobbes is another one. He did a beautiful 10 years of a terrific strip, which uh, started great and even got better. And he pushed himself and he's someone who loved comic strips. You love drawing. And if anything, if I reference Calvin and Hobbes talking about the book, it is just because of that. I love drawing it. And I'd forgotten how much I love drawing and how much. Well, a good example, okay? okay. As, you're, as you're looking around for Judd's a, a writer or a storyteller, it's like, I'm a cartoonist. It took me a while to figure that out again, that like, oh, no, that's what I do. Right. Like, you know, despite all the other things I might have done, you know, writing mainstream comic books or working on TV, it's like, I'm actually a cartoonist. I like making words and pictures, and there's nothing that actually makes me happier. It's, it's my vocation, not my job. Do you do this uh, when you created High Low? Was this created on paper? With this pen? is yes, I joke. It's an artisanal comic book. <laughs> it is it is done on paper with pencil and ink and pen. Uh, at the very most, I, I scan it in, and the lettering is done by computer. Even that, I feel dirty about. Can you duplicate it in a in a computer? What's the difference for you? I think I, the truth is, it's a copy editing issue. I'm dealing with a mainstream publisher that is Random House. I'm dealing with. Uh, the copy editors at Random House, who are a wonderfully anal group, and I do mean that, but there's a lot of things like, can we move that that comma over a little bit away from that letter E? It's like, and if if it meant like me getting out the whiteout, moving the comma, and then them turning around saying, can we move it back? So there's a lot of that, <laughs> which I knew like a couple of minutes at the computer, opposed to several minutes waiting for the paint to dry. You know, is is a different animal. Judd Winnick, when you were talking before about working on all of these adult comic books, the DC superhero comic books, I mean, you're basically, as you say, a cartoonist. Why would you suddenly give up the fun part, which is the illustration? It kind of happened by accident, in a way. I was working on, this is 10, 12 years ago, I was working on uh, The Adventures of Barry Ween, a book I was writing and drawing. A great friend of mine who is uh, a mentor named Bob Shrek had a job at DC Comics. He went from being an independent comic editor at Dark Horse and then his own company called Oni, and he wound up at DC. And then he threw it to me, you know, called me up, said, would you be interested in writing, like, superhero comics? It's like, even, he had asked, like, do you even like superhero comics? <laughs> it's like, it wasn't a conversation we ever had. I said, yeah, I love them. And we spent, like, an hour talking about it. Like, no, I grew up on them. I really enjoy them. He goes, well, I think you'd be good at this. It's like, so why don't we give it a try? So I, I wrote a few scripts, and he liked them. And for me, it was like, this is the greatest, like, you know, day job paycheck one could get. So I'm writing superhero comics while I get to support my other art, which didn't pay quite so much, doing my Barry Ween books and, and the kind. Doing the mainstream superhero books led to TV development, which led to an animated series, which meant to live action TV development. I did that for a while. And somewhere along the way, I just stopped drawing. It just kind of happened, you know, bits and pieces. I always felt that, you know, when doing Juniper Lee, which is an animated series, I was drawing a lot. I'm working on storyboards. I'm helping design characters. I'm putting pen to paper a lot. But um, when that was over with, there was a good five to six years where, you know, right around when my kids were born, that I wasn't drawing. My wife was very much aware that, like, I was not happy. There was something wrong. When I started just doing this book on spec, just for me. I, you know, I didn't have a publisher. I didn't know what was going to happen. I, I, maybe I'll put it on Kickstarter. I didn't know. I just felt so much better. I didn't realize that, like, oh, no, no, no. This is, this is beyond what I'm supposed to do. This is actually who I am. It was a good midlife crisis. It was better than girls and sports cars. But the other side of it, of course, is that somewhere along the, the way, you had to learn, pick up a little bit about pacing. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 
no, no, I really feel that I did my 10,000 hours doing superhero comics, as well as doing television, doing animated series. Yeah, I'm not knocking the experience. It was helpful is the wrong word for it. I learned a lot. I became a much better storyteller for doing, I mean, sometimes, you know, four monthly superhero comics a month, along with trying to do this and working on that and an animate series. By the time I've I, I sat down and I'm just doing this book series, I really feel that I've got all the toys in the toy box I need and all the, you know, pencils in the box that I need to really make it work. So I agree, yeah. One element of it, maybe it's in other places I can't tell because I'm not a big graphic novel person or middle school graphic novel person, but you have visual jokes yeah, which take place over a series of panels. Yeah, I would have thought that would be impossible to actually get a laugh at the end, but it does. But it and, cracked you up. More importantly, you, you as a reader, you yeah. said a couple of things that cracked you up. Yeah. yeah. That is old school cartooning. When we were younger and we got a newspaper every single day to our house, all of us, you know, when they, we still have subscriptions, we got a daily dose of comic strips and everybody read them. I mean, you, you'd be hard pressed to find someone who didn't read the funniest page a couple of days a week. Some of us were really faithful. And uh, that is old school cartooning, you know, one, two, three joke in panel four. That is that is the rhythm that you learn. I mean, that is probably the thing I've done longer than anything else is try to make jokes in cartoons. When you've got 10 panels leading to a joke, that's right. like the Sunday issue. Yeah, exactly. You know, twice as big and in color. It also goes back to Mad Magazine, which was right. in my DNA, which I owe it all to my father. Not a comic book guy, not even like necessarily a, a Mad Magazine guy, but that's what he grew up on. He's got a kid who likes to draw. My brother was a sports guy. So he bought me comic books and he bought me a ton of Mad Magazine and every Mad Magazine ripoff therein. It was a daily diet from when I was very, very small, reading jokes, looking at the comedy, and I would copy them. The first cartoons I passed off as my own to my parents, I was just ripping them off and copying them out of Mad Magazine just because, you know, I wanted to make them laugh. You know, later I think I realized that, like, this was excellent training, you know. It's like anything else. If you, if you want to be a writer, you need to read. And if you want to be a cartoonist, you've got to watch a lot of cartoons, and, you know, and read a lot of cartoons. When you're doing this, you're also aware you're, you were a big gay rights and HIV activist, and I guess that is in your DNA at this point in yeah. many areas. Yeah. When you're working on something like high-low, how much is it in your brain that there's got to be something more than just a story? I think it's always there at this point. It's been over a decade, I'd say, as a, as a professional writer or professional storyteller, and in my mainstream comic books, superhero comics, there was always a lot of stories that dealt with social issues. I could call them politics. I always feel it was unfair sometimes to call it politics. Right. If a character tests positive or a character happens to be gay or that my, my comics seem to pop, be populated with like a lot of people who are all colors of the rainbow. I don't even know if we can call it diversity. I would occasionally put non-white people in comic books, uh, which people groused about. Not so much in an obvious way, but they would grouse about it a little bit when it was sort of noted that, like, one of the team books I was working on, like, there was wound up only being, like, two white people on a team of seven or something. And that, you know, it's like, yeah, it's weird when it goes the other direction, you noticed. So I think the person that I've grown into from my experiences always informs my work. For Hilo, there are no obvious sort of social issues. 
but your main character is Asian. Yeah. His girlfriend is black. Right. And their little outer space friend is white. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, you know, pretty much any mix in San Francisco. I've said for a long time, I've always wanted to create characters that, you know, speak to the, to, to, to the readers and speak to the world we live in. And uh, when doing action adventures or in doing storytelling in general, they've been fairly homogenous. That goes all the way back to, you know, 70 years ago when, you know, it was a pile of white guys making stories about a, about a pile of white guys. Like, okay, well, we don't have to do that anymore. So when doing this, it was only mildly conscious. Like, yeah, you know what? One kid will be white, one will be Asian, one will be black, which is sort of, you know, representative, I feel, but the world that we live in. You know, we've got stories that have, you know, blue people, orange people, people from different dimensions. I think we can handle a couple of black people, Asian people, Latino people in our stories. And it happens in mainstream publishing. I was just talking with a few people about this, that a lot of times even still, if you have non-white characters in stories, the stories are about their non-whiteness. It's about their ethnicity. It's about, you know, where they come from and overcoming this or how they, you know, move through life and that. It's like, well, this little girl happens to be black and this kid happens to be Asian and our lead character happens to be in my opinion, the stereotypical uh, quasi-superhero. He's blonde and white and wears red, yellow, and blue. My children are mixed race. You know, my wife is Asian-American. They identify as just that, as mixed. They're part of me, part of her. The family in the book that, uh, well, his name's Daniel Jackson Lim, DJ. And DJ's family is based on my wife's family, but almost in the most minor ways, sort of minor. Her family, they eat standing up. They always talk heavily over meals. They eat with chopsticks not because they have to. It's just who they are. You know, does my mother-in-law cook Chinese food? Like, no, it's just the food she cooks happens to be, I guess, in that style. <laughs> you know, when Chinese right. people cook food, is it Chinese food? I mean, it's just like it's nothing that's, it's spoken about. And, again, the ethnicity of the children in the book isn't an issue so, most, so much as it's just present. Like life. Kids notice, though. Uh, I've been doing a lot of school visits delightfully when doing this book. I will go to, I, I get the great pleasure of going to schools and having an assembly of 200 kids and talk to them about cartooning and high-low and all that. To begin with, they're at a level of happiness, you know, that's about a nine out of a 10 because they're in an assembly and they're not in class. So they're happy anyway. Right. But then when we get into it, uh, they enjoy that. But invariably, the kids will actually ask now and again, was there a reason why you made DJ Asian? Was there a reason why you made, made Gina black? Which, heartening as it is sad that children of color actually are, are noticing that they're being represented in this book and they want to know, am I missing some reason why? If there's some ulterior motive or some story point that I missed why, you know, they're black and why they're Asian, it shines a light in the need that why we should just have diverse characters in our stories, especially to kids. You're listening to an interview with Judd Winnick, whose book is titled High Low, The Boy Who Crashed to Earth. Judd Winnick. Your career was kind of not doing all that well, and you applied for the real world. At that particular time, was there much in the way of, quote, reality television out there? No. So it's 1994. I, I had a development deal with Universal Press Syndicate to do a comic strip. They dropped me from the contract, um, and I had to move back in with my mom and dad. You politely had said that I sort of, like, you know, hit a rough patch. No, I, I was 24 years old, 23 years old at the time, and had to move back in with my mother and father, which is... Always very proud for a college graduate to get to do that. So, yeah, I was sitting on my couch and saw a commercial, you know, wannabe on Real World 3 San Francisco while watching the second season. And I said, yes, I, I, I really would. 
at the time, no, I think it was pretty much the real world and maybe cops. It's the reality show where they would follow around police officers arresting drunk guys in tank tops. At first glance, you don't exactly seem like the kind of person who they would have selected. It's kind of odd that they picked you, or is it? Now, yeah, now. (laughs) Now it seems crazy. I'll be very honest with you. I'm talking a little bit out of school. Maybe maybe John Murray wouldn't like me to say this, but at some, I won't say at what point. How's that? At one point when they were still doing the show many seasons long after hours, he admitted that they're having a very hard time finding an honest cast, meaning that people who do not have ulterior motives about doing the show such as meeting some six foot two, uh, you know, 21 year old. And John is asking him like, so really you live in Los Angeles and you're a bartender and you have no other aspirations in the whole wide world. There's nothing else you might want to do. Maybe something in entertainment. Like, no, no. It's like, you know, so they got all these pretty people who wanted to be on TV to be models or actors or as later would turn out to be just reality TV stars. When we did it, don't get me wrong, you know, it's like I have a fairly comf- you know, sizable ego, right. and we all did it because we wanted to be on TV and thought it would be cool. Uh, did we ever think it would be turning into a career? No. I mean, a couple of people that I lived with might have wanted to be hosts or actors or stay in front of the camera some more. I thought somebody's going to see me draw a bit. That could help. I got advice from the director of the show, George Vashore, when we were finishing up, and he said that this will open doors for you, but you got to walk through them. And I took that to heart. He was right. I met all kinds of stupid people, wanted to do all kinds of stupid things. Uh, but it did help just in the sense that I could actually, in the large piles of, of submissions that people would get, I could get mine actually seen by somebody. Because somebody might know the name Judd Winnick from yeah, MTV. Yeah, just that. They just, they just knew me from the show. And so from, from the slush pile that they would get of, of submissions for whatever I might have been trying to do at the time, um, I might get someone who just liked the show, like, you know, he, he seemed like a nice enough guy. Let me just take a look. So the doors open, and that, that's when I had to walk through it. Before that, when you were on the show, yeah. well, certainly there's that break between when they're filming and when it's on the air. Well, a one-week break. We filmed it for six months. Yeah. Then we moved out of the house. And then a week later, or like four days later, because we were counting, they aired the first episode, which was the first week we moved into the house. Okay. Um, so there was a, you know, so this was from six months ago. Uh, we were totally done and gone and moved on with our lives, so to speak, when the show started airing. That must have been pretty weird to suddenly see the six month, <laughs> six months earlier. And it must be very, very weird because there is a disconnect between the editing and what actually happens, or is there? Back then... Yeah, we would totally, like, that didn't happen like that. It was only a matter of degrees. You know, there's, as we've learned now, many more egregious editing uh, crimes going out there in reality TV than what we experienced. But there are minor things here and there where stories are shifted, things are created. To be honest, as the show was being aired, our gripes about how the show had been, you know, maybe manipulated here and there, which, again, were pretty minor stuff. Uh, Pedro got sick. So Pedro Zamora was uh, – the show started airing in June, and Pedro was first hospitalized in August. So when the show is beginning to air for the first time, Pedro's in the hospital, and we started dealing with that. So it was this unbelievably strange and at times wonderful experience of suddenly we're famous. People stop us on the street. People are asking all about us, and we're also contending with that Pedro's sick and – 
at first we're having to deal with it. He's in New York and trying to help out the family, and everyone's trying to circle the wagons and how to get him out of New York and back to Miami. And then it was only, you know, at that point we got back to Miami, and we realized that he wasn't going to recover. Um, this is all while the show is beginning to air. So right. it became this stranger experience where, okay, so they made it seem like I had a crush on this girl who I didn't even particularly like. It didn't really matter in, like, the grand scheme of things, what was going on. It really gave us that proper perspective that usually one acquires when they're older. Did any money change hands in that? You weren't paid for this. Oh, yeah. We were paid. We were paid, I probably shouldn't say. We were paid $5,400, which we received when we moved out. In the seasons prior to ours, so in New York, I think they got a weekly stipend. I know when they were in Los Angeles, they got a weekly stipend. And the problem was they're getting a weekly stipend, meaning paid, every week, and no one got jobs. <laughs> so there was a lot of sitting around the house, not much going on. So they cooked up the idea, like, this is your weekly nut, and we're going to give it to you at the end. In that way, it sort of ensured that they will have to go out in the world and do something. They don't have to pay for rent or utilities, right. but they got to buy their food. And if they want to, like, you know, buy alcohol or, you know, go to the movies, they're going to have to get the money from somewhere, which required all of us to do that, get jobs. What was your job at that point? I was scrambling around for whatever I could find. I, uh, I was doing spot illustration work. Uh, I got a comic strip in – a weekly comic strip in The Examiner, which uh, – oh, boy, did they make a big deal about that on the show. It was like I broke the sound barrier. And at no point did I actually say on camera, like, they're paying me $15 a week. So let's <laughs> let's not act like I got – you know, that I won the lottery or got on the moon. How was it having – a camera crew following you all the time. I mean. It's absolutely as strange as you think it is. You just got used to it. The way it works is simply exactly the way you think it is. You're instructed not to acknowledge the cameras. You don't to just pretend we're not here. You don't talk to them. You talk to each other. You ignore us. So it would be like you and I sitting here having a conversation, and there's three other people in the room, one with a camera, one with a boom mic, and one guy who's a grip to handle anything that might be happening. And you don't pay attention to them. So this is all the time. This is your life all the time, from the time you get up to the time that you go to sleep and the lights are shut out. They're there all the time. After a couple of weeks, you get used to it. <laughs> it's just it's just Billy and Rick and Craig and you know and eight other people you, that you get to know intimately without ever talking to them. Really, much. <laughs> you talk to them a little bit. Oh yeah. You know you you when there's a break in the action when they're changing tapes when they're we're moving around when they actually physically can't film us, we would have conversations about nothing popular culture, music, the new Beastie Boy album came out, you know, whatever. And you get to know them in that way. And then after the fact, we became friendly with a lot of them. Because I don't know if people realize this, when folks work on reality television show, especially one like ours, they got to know us very intimately. They knew us so well. They lived with us. They were there all the time. All the experiences we had, they had. This was, These were like about 30 people who were also grieving and absolutely crushed when Pedro got sick. And there were also people that when Sean and Pedro had their commitment ceremony in, in the house and they filmed it, they had to have a pep talk beforehand where our directors told them there's to be absolutely no crying. You understand? <laughs> None of you are to get emotionally involved with this and no hugging them. <laughs> well, how about all the controversy with Puck? I'm sure they built it up a little bit. No, that was the acts. I was absolutely as 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 dramatic and traumatic as it was made out to be. I'll say at the top of it that we were all very kind of kind to people, and the idea of kicking him out of the house was not something that we had taken lightly. And we also kind of wanted to give him every single opportunity to do that. Um, I will say that he was in the house a shorter period of time. Then the show, like the show, sort of made it seem like he was almost there, like more than halfway through. I'm not sure he quite made it two months out of the six we lived there. 
that was probably the last bit of drama that we watched before Pedro got sick. It was a big deal. It was a big deal for everybody. You know, it was, it was a big deal for Puck because he was the guy who was too cool to be on the real world. So it all kind of worked out for him. And we apparently, the collective, we, the show had really big ratings. They like strung it out into two episodes. I don't quite remember right. all the salient details. I didn't watch it. It's been a while. Um, I lived it more than actually watched it on TV. So, <laughs> but it was a big deal. You know, we were, we acknowledged the fact that this wasn't something that we asked permission at one point. We actually said, are, can, can we ask him to leave? You know, we had just had this, you know, like, what are the rules here? And it was put to us, like, you guys do whatever you want to do. You live here. If someone wants to leave the house, they can leave the house. If someone, you want to ask one of your roommates to leave, you do that. So for us, it was a pretty big deal. And it was portrayed like the moon landing, you know. <laughs> the odd thing is that here we are uh, over 20 years later, and of all of the real world or even reality series, except maybe a couple of the early Survivors or right. American Idol, that particular season stands out in the history of, quote, reality television. Yeah. Have, have you ever thought about that? Often, yeah. For me, it was a seminal experience in my life, obviously. You know, I met my wife there. Now we have two children. And I shudder to think if I wasn't one out of 30,000 people they chose. For what happened, this is 1994. This is before combination drug therapy. This is before anyone would even dream of the idea of gay marriage in a real way. And when you contracted AIDS or HIV, you died. So everybody, when they thought of someone who was living with AIDS, well, the images we saw, they were all young men. Usually you saw them in newscast looking like they stepped out of Auschwitz, covered in KS lesions. That's what you looked like. That was the image. And then comes Pedro, you know, this handsome, charming young man who is living with HIV, and no one had ever seen anyone like him, truly. And for it to be in everyone's living room, I think it normalized the epidemic in a way that absolutely had not been tackled to that point. And in some ways, a lot of it hasn't been matched since then. It was, it was truly genuine. I mean, the show began with all this flash with Puck, which was fun and crazy. And then I think as the stories sort of shifted more towards what Pedro was living with, it became very important, you know, 1994. So he's, he's on TV living with AIDS, and he and his partner, Sean, have a commitment ceremony, a, a gay wedding on television. I was very heartened when, when the Supreme Court shot down DOMA just before Pride Weekend here in San Francisco, yeah. how often Sean and Pedro came up in the discussion, in news, in the timelines that are made up. It is fascinating that when they make up these timelines. And I think, I think the media likes timelines more than anything now. Right. <laughs> when they make these up, there's always a huge benchmark for Pedro Zamora and for Pedro and Sean and Sean Sasser. Um, I think that's why. During that period when it was airing around the time that Pedro got sick, you were still talking to him about the show and everything. What did he think of what was going on and how people were responding? It was fun. It was really, it was a lot of fun. It was the first uh, month and change when the show started airing. It was, I'll, I'll crassly, it was doing everything it was supposed to do. I mean, we joked about it. We, that, that was the whole thing is that we joked about me and Pam and Pedro and Corey. We would joke about how famous he was going to be and how big a deal this was going to be and how he was going to meet anybody in the whole world he ever wanted to meet. 
you know, joking with him, like, you're going to meet Elton John. Ha, ha, ha. No, seriously, though, you're going to go meet Elton John at some point in the next couple of months. It's going to happen. You know, it's like you, you're, you're a gay man living with AIDS. It's, it, and, and this is, you know, it, it seemed crass and silly, but it was, you know, we're in, in hindsight, we're, we're kids. Did he? No, he didn't. He didn't. <laughs> he would have. He only got about, again, like a month or so of the insanity. And the insanity was a lot of fun. When he and Sean would walk around San Francisco, it came to the point that they couldn't walk around San Francisco. How did that feel for you being recognized and not having, not being private anymore? I mean, it would be worse now with TMZ and, right, and right. cameras. But even then, it must have been very odd. Suddenly, you're walking down the street and people are like, is that? It's weird. It's, it's weird. You're prepared for it somewhat. You're ready for it. You're on television. Again, everyone involved in the show has a pretty healthy ego about these things, except except my roommate, Corey Murphy. Corey was 20 years old when she did the show. She did it because she thought it was fun. She absolutely had no interest in being famous, and it was very hard for her. The rest of us, I think, were, were prepared for people to recognize us. I think each and every one of us at some point had comfortably gotten up on stage in front of people and right. done something. You know, Muhammad Bilal was a, was a singer and performer. Uh, Puck's a huge extrovert. Uh, Pam had uh, sung, and, and, and she was in a rock band, and she had performed all through college. These are all people who, at some point, were comfortable about being in front of people. So there was the bit of that performance bug, which wasn't being played out during the show, but a feeling of, I'm important enough to get up in front of people and not embarrass myself. The weirdness of being suddenly famous and being very famous for a short period of time. I mean, this was the summer and fall of uh, 1994. That's when Friends came out. Right. And for a small period of time, we were as famous as, as the gang from Friends. You know, I remember when Pam and I went to the GLAAD Awards, which was a little bit later, and the cast of Friends were there, and they were mobbed. But Pam and I were mobbed, too. You know, <laughs> we, you know we, were, we were, it was like, like oh, it's, that's Pam and John, that's Pam and John. Like, are they together? They look like they're together. It's like, you know, and the people are taking pictures, want to talk to us. We're doing lots of interviews. And it's like, you know, a few months later, it's all gone in a big way. That fervor around it's all gone because we're no longer making television shows and, uh, and that's gone. But for us, it kind of, it never exactly went away because we were together. And it never ac- actually went away completely because we stayed here. Uh, meaning in San Francisco, the Bay Area. And uh, people would often come up to us. They mostly want to talk about Pedro. Still, it's 21 years later. Well, you also became a leading activist, uh, HIV activist and gay rights activist. And that kept you in the spotlight a little bit longer. It did. It did. I mean, I think part of that was we both felt that we have this currency where people know who we are. And uh, we can go to colleges and high schools and middle schools, and they'll, of course they'll invite us because we're those nice kids from the real world. And we can talk to some fairly conservative parts of the country and some, some fairly conservative school districts and talk to 13-year-olds about using condoms. Um, and it's okay because it's Pam and Judd from the real world, so it's okay. The other side of it was that we really didn't want Pedro's story just to end. The show was still in reruns here and there, but... Uh, this, is before, this is before the Internet really became the Internet. Right. So it sort of felt like if we don't go out there, you know, and talk about him, what happens? Then it does feel very much like then it was all for nothing. So we wanted to do what we could. And with that, yeah, the after effect was that we stayed out there in the spotlight. But part of it was that we were probably trying to grab the spotlight with both hands. And when the spotlight was on us, we were pretty much talking about Pedro. 
One more question about reality TV, and then I want to move on to your work with DC sure. in particular. When you look at Donald Trump and when you look at what's happening now in 2015, knowing that you were, I guess, there almost for the birth of reality television, what do you see? I mean, do you have any thoughts, Judd Winnick, about <laughs> how that entire world has shifted because of shows like The Real World? Well, I think The Real World started out in a from a pretty honest place. I mean, the, the quick history of it is that Mary Ellis Beatum and John Murray wanted to do a soap opera for MTV. It was too expensive. And as they kept cutting out things from like, okay, we'll just, we'll, we'll, we'll you know, everything will be uh, improvised. So no writers. Does that save us money? Well, you still got actors. And actors are part of the screen actors. Okay, forget actors. What if we just regular people to make stuff up? Okay, what if we do this as just a documentary? <laughs> just people in the house and we'll film them all the time. And they were just doing it to uh, just do that. Like what if, what if we actually like, you know, put young people in a Petri dish and have them bounce into one another and see what happens? For that to explode into what became game shows, like a lot of game shows. Modern and, Family even. Yeah. No, it later defined like television fiction. Some of the best scripted shows. The Office came out of, you know, the idea of reality TV. I think both the one from the UK and the one here in the States were amazing shows. And from that, often to Modern Family, which is also great. They don't even explain it anymore. And they don't have to. They don't have to explain what they're doing. Like at no point in Modern Family or even The Office do they ever explain that this is a documentary that we're filming. It's just there. And I think it became sort of part of our popular culture DNA that we just sort of recognize the tropes and the feelings of it. And then we've got a situation where you have someone like Donald Trump. He couldn't have gotten where he was if not for the egomaniacs who took over reality TV. Yeah, yeah. It's the movie Face in the Crowd, which no one's talking about as nearly as much as I think they should. Movie. Anyone listening, you should go you should go rent Andy Griffith was a star of a movie called Face in the Crowd, which was this this regular guy who becomes kind of a, a well, just benevolent force on television at first, but actually it's just a, just an evil, evil man. I'm censoring my language. Man, does that ever hold up? It just you know, and the the, the acting is sort of it's uh, it's pre it's pre actor studio, but there's it's it feels like real human beings and they're doing this, and it's just it's just the idea of of, of someone. Um, and he had aspirations for political office. That was, the next, that was how the movie was like, – that's what he was going for at the end, this character who became just – he was a bumpkin, went on TV, spinning yarns, became incredibly popular, and then they were moving towards you know political office. I think his name was Lonesome Rhodes. Oh, gosh. I think that's right. Yeah. 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 But I think that's – in truth, somewhere between the movie Network, Facing the Crowd, uh, uh, God Almighty, these things are actually happening now. We have a, a, a millionaire, or if you, I guess a billionaire, if, if, his, if his figures are to be believed, realtor from New York, man who builds buildings, you know, became a reality star and now gets to run for president. It's all kind of silly. I don't think we quite have the long view on how this is all going to play out. I tend to think that the, the media is doing a terrible job of actually trying to remedy this. <laughs> they can't help themselves. They're like, they're like, they're like starving children. They have 24 hours to, to fill and Donald Trump fills the bellies of, of the 24-hour news cycle in a very big, big way. So I don't even fault them necessarily. But at some point they should point out that these big numbers they're talking about that any of these characters are getting, these are the registered Republican voters for the primary. That's like nine people. 
It's, it's a small number. Years from now, they'll discuss this election. It's like, do you remember how it started? Remember the previous election, how the pizza man was in, in the lead and then he, he flopped out? Remember when Donald Trump was like the guy for a couple of months? Do you remember that? I don't even say it's like, oh, God forbid he gets it. I actually believe this this will happen. An actual elected politician will rise to the top of the GOP ticket at some point. It'll happen because that's how these things happen. As someone as I will call myself an expert in reality TV, yeah, we've seen what happens when uh, the snake really starts to eat itself a couple of times over. <laughs> Before we go, I, I do have a couple of questions about D.C. Sure. 2002, you were doing Green Lantern. Yeah. And his assistant, who was gay, was involved in a hate crime. Mm-hmm. And shortly thereafter, you did Green Arrow. You had an HIV-positive character. Mm-hmm. Did you approach DC to make these changes? Did they approach you? Did they say, go for it? What kind of freedom did you have to create these kinds of characters? A lot of freedom. I'll say starting from like yeah, at the bottom of the page. Mainstream superhero comics has actually been, they're a fairly progressive form of storytelling. They always kind of have been. Despite the fact that, as I said, mostly white guys in costumes and, you know, kind of light on diversity and and light on strong female characters. But they're working on it. That said, having uh, having characters were black, they were fairly early, early on. I mean, in the 60s, you know, during the civil rights movement, they were putting black characters in there. You know, I often joke like, yes, Black Panther, opposed to the all the other colors that Panthers are. They, <laughs> they wanted to make sure that no one's going to be confused about his color or the color of Panthers. But even then, like, yeah, they were trying to get – I think Black Panther first showed up in the mid-60s. So comics have always quietly and not so quietly been fairly progressive. So this – I wasn't ever re- reinventing the wheel by trying to do these storylines. But in many cases, it was something that we organically came up with. In one – in the case of uh, Green Lantern, and the character's name was Terry Berg, who was a teenager. This came on the heels of Matthew Shepard being killed. And my editor, Bob Schreck, had a germ of an idea that he said, I think I want to do something to address this. And uh, we kicked it when he and I just kicked it around. And when it went uh, upstairs, upstairs being at the time the uh, publisher, Paul Levitz, Paul was wholeheartedly behind it, as he was for most of these ideas. If anything, the only roadblocks we ever got into with comics were, in some cases, being you know, too violent, too gritty, too this and that. It was always stuff about this. It was never anything that, again, I'll, I'll call it social politics or social issues. When I came to Bob and said, I think I want this character, Mia Dearden, to uh, test positive for HIV and then become a superhero named Speedy, you know, Green Hour sidekick. Uh, Bob thought it was a terrific idea when we approached uh, Paul Levitz and Dan DiDio, who were the heads of DC at the time. Dan DiDio had said, I, I was just about to approach you about I think we should do a story involving an HIV-positive character, and you guys are already doing it. Great. Never mind. Carry on. They were very supportive of that. Wikipedia mentions uh, an affair between Catwoman and Batman. That, yeah. And <laughs> <laughs> when people complained, you said, well, DC wanted it? No. That's not exactly what I said. I think I was misquoted in this. I don't want to blame DC in the sense that – what was I trying to say there? I was trying to say that there was something that we, we had all discussed and we were comfortable about creating this relationship between Batman and Catwoman. You know, an adult relationship. They had sort of tiptoe around it for, for a long time, and, you know, they, they sort of had a romance. And I actually wanted to take it up to an adult relationship where, you know, 
they uh, start making out and pulling off their costumes and then the comic ends and then you you know proverbially cut to the fireplace and then we come back and they are post-coital a lot of you lost their minds over this that batman and catwoman actually i'm going to use the word had sex um we didn't show it in the comic or anything you see dirtier things in any episode of gray's anatomy this was just that they you know actually sort of consummated the relationship and they had sex it became a story point about her making really, really terrible decisions. And she's someone who, you know, acts before thinking and she doesn't always think about what's in her best interest. You know, she's a thief and she's someone who would run to a burning building. And if you're a thief and a criminal, sleeping with Batman is a really, really bad idea. And for Batman, we were trying to create this simple idea that this was his blind spot, that, you know, he was actually a person of desire, which is the first time I did that. So all that said, a lot of people just went bananas because we have two... You know, uh, two characters, two legendary characters of DC Comics, you know, actually getting in bed. When I say getting in bed, they did it right there on the floor. Um, <laughs> it, it didn't, it, it, in their opinion, didn't help that uh, Gil March, who is our artist on the book, draws people very provocatively. I mean, not any more so than Catwoman's ever been drawn for the last 50 years. But uh, it was the first time I'd ever been called a misogynist. It was the first time I think I ever said, you know what, I think I'm just going to shut up. And just let this just sit here for about a month before I actually even bother to comment on it. Let me just let have the comic book come out. So to sum up, DC never made me do a thing. It was always always a team effort, so we can take the credit and the blame together. Uh, here's a geek question that I don't quite understand. Shoot, the Infinite Crisis series. Yeah, uh, was that your invention? No, I mean yes and no. So a million years ago, when dinosaurs roamed the Earth, and I was a kid, they did this thing called Crisis on Infinite Earths. DC Comics. They had like a couple of dozen parallel worlds, like 30 of them, something absurd where, you know, you could have all these stories. And someone came up with this great idea that what if we get rid of all the other worlds, blow them all up, literally, and make it so like DC has one world rather than there's an alternate reality Superman who's a little bit older and married to Lois Lane. And there's a different Batman over here who's actually Dick Grayson. They had a lot of stuff. So it was it was a really interesting story. There was a lot of housekeeping. And that was during the 80s. So I guess about eight or nine years ago, or maybe six or seven years ago, my buddy Dan DiDio, who's the head of DC at the time, came up with the idea. I think he said, I think it's time for another big story and some house cleaning. So we did another Infinite Crisis, which was something similar to that, where it was about doing a very big story, which sort of streamlined the universe in a way. That's the most crass way of saying we did a big, gigantic story that covered the entire universe. Judd Winnick, what do you think of the current success of superhero films and do you think it – what does it say about our society and not even our society? These things are worldwide. Mm-hmm. What do you think is going on there? I mean does it kind of blow your mind? Yes and no. I talk about this with my friends a lot. We talk about it a lot. Like, you know, we joke about like if I was a kid and you told me that Rocket Raccoon would become, you know, a big motion picture star, I would have told you you're out of your mind. You're drunk. Uh, no one even reads this comic, Guardians of the Galaxy. So that part is a kid when we see like like who thought like there's a great Daredevil TV show? Who ever thought we could actually get a great Daredevil TV show? The flip side of it is that, you know, guys in our 30s and 40s and gals in our 30s and 40s who grew up on comics who uh, now get to make some of these decisions. Like, yeah, I want to make a superhero movie and I think I'd be pretty good at it. So that's part one. I think the other part, too, is that it used to be a period of time that if you want to see something amazing, you had to look at a comic book. It had to be drawn. I think the technology and what we're able to do now with CGI 
is so amazing that you can get a man who can fly and really believe it. You can get a guy who can actually turn into the Hulk and it looks real. I think these these unbelievable stories, which you said to be drawn by hand on paper, can now be brought to life on the screen. And these crazy stories, I think, I think that's one of the biggest reasons why they're taking flight. These these people who wanted to tell these stories of their youth and now have all the toys in the toy box to do that. Do you think uh, eventually this is going to crash just because there's so many? Yeah, it just you know there'll there'll be a there'll be a few flops and there'll be a couple of other successes. They've been making Spider-Man over and over again. We're going to be on our third Spider-Man of kind of the modern era uh, coming next year. You know these are great stories. There's a reason. There's a reason why they're around. This is re- there's a reason why Superman and Batman have been around for 75 years because they're great characters. I think what we'll just keep seeing that. You know, honestly, there's probably a baby being born right now who, when we're very, very old and gray, will be playing Batman. <laughs> you know, there'll be some 28-year-old who's going to be playing Batman in an upcoming movie, you know, you know, 28 years from now. I don't think we're ever going to quite see the end of it, per se. I think they'll eventually run out of characters. But again, in comic books, we've never run out of characters either. We've been writing for, you know, we've been writing the X-Men and Superman and Batman for a really long time. There'll be just another batch of storytellers who figure out another way to tell them. Judd Winnick, uh, now we've got Hilo, The Boy Who Crashed to Earth. You have a three-book contract. You plan on writing six books? Is that yeah, correct? we're going to do six of them. Yeah. You're going to do six of them. Yeah. Uh, what else do you have in the fire? This. Delightfully, this is all I, I, I have the time for right now. I'm a soup-to-nuts old-school cartoonist. I write and draw the whole thing. I had the great pleasure of being at the Charles M. Schultz Museum for the 65th anniversary of the Peanuts, and they gathered up about 30 or 40 cartoonists to just sit at tables and have people come around and have them sketch Peanuts. Um, So we got to talking about all kinds of stuff. But then we also got to talking a lot about this crew I was there with are cartoonists, meaning that the idea, like, they write their stuff and they draw their stuff. So the fact that I'm writing and drawing this pretty much all the time is is quite a blessing. It's the first time in my life as an adult and as a professional cartoonist that I'm not writing one thing while developing another thing while waiting for that other thing to happen where I was at some point like doing three or four things at once. I get to just do this and it is taking up all my time, which is not a bad thing. It's a pretty good job to have. Hilo takes place in Burke County, and we've seen the return of Bloom County. Yeah, I took that as a very good omen. <laughs> uh, Bloom County and Burke Breath are the reason why I'm a cartoonist. It came, it came around for me at the exact right time. I think uh, I was 13 or 14 years old, and sort of having graduated from enjoying Garfield when I was 8 or 9 to uh, kind of struggling a little bit with Doonesbury, because Doonesbury was sort of denser material and headier material than I was ready for. It was when I was in college I started really – going back and reading Doonesbury with Ernest. But it was Bloom County that cracked me up, which kind of taught me how to draw a certain way, which combined everything like sort of from popular culture to Borscht Belt humor to, I loved it. It's why I'm a cartoonist. So when this book is about to come out, Hilo's about to come out, and Bloom County returned, I took that as a very good omen. (laughs) And it's as good as it ever was. Yeah, it really is. The second book in the Hilo series, Saving the Whole Wide World, was published in May 2016. A third book, Hilo, The Great Big Boom, will be published in February 2017. To listen to more of these interviews, go to my website, bookwaves.com, or find the Bookwaves and Arts Waves podcasts at kpfa.org. Or you can subscribe to both podcasts via iTunes. 
Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast.